You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast from the South China Morning Post. I'm Finbar Birmingham. We've got a tripolar episode for you today as we slice and dice China's biggest domestic political event of the year. The National People's Congress and within that the Lianghui, or two sessions, where the country's political path for the next year will be confirmed. We've also this week seen Joe Biden unveil his executive order to protect American supply chain security. I went through the document and didn't find a single instance of the word China, but reading it, one could not but help think that this was the elephant in the room. Our political economy editors John Carter and Joe Shin will be with me to discuss the ins and outs of these issues, while in the second half of the show I am joined by Philippe Lacour, who spent many years as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong himself. Himself, but who in recent years has become an important follower of Europe-China affairs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. After signing an investment deal with China on the second last day of 2020, 2021 has been a bit more complicated for the European Union's relationship with the mainland. I've been meeting European officials in Hong Kong all week, speaking to more of them on the phone back in Brussels, and there's a sense that with the political crackdown in Hong Kong, coupled with the continued concerns over what is reported to be going on in Xinjiang, this deal may have been misplaced, or at least mistimed. Philippe is plugged right into that Brussels apparatus, and he's going to give us a great rundown on the whole affair. We'll see you on the other side. Thursday evening, and I'm joined by our political economy editors, John Carter and Joe Xin, to talk about the week's events in all things China geopolitics and what lies ahead. Next week's a huge week in the Chinese political calendar. It is the two sessions, Langhui. The biggest political moment in the Chinese calendar when we get a bit more of a firmer idea about what the year ahead might hold in policy terms. We'll start with Joe Xin today. Joe Xin, what are you looking out for on the policy front? Anything major and do you expect any surprises or is it all going to go according to the script? Thank you, Fingba. For this year, uh, it's a little bit special because every five years, Beijing releases its five-year plan. And this year, it's the time again. So Beijing releases 14th five-year plan. If you look at human being history, I think China has been the uh, country that the only country that is able to do the 14th uh, uh, five-year plan. The Soviet Union collapsed during the 12th, uh, 13th five-year plan. Anyway, we will see lots of policy guidelines for this plan about China's vision of its future and also about the economy and the social development. So this is quite a, a, a interesting because if you say, if you care about uh, our planet, for instance, China has made the promise of uh, carbon neutrality by 2060. And now we are going to see more details, for instance, included in the uh, five-year plan to see what China is going to do about the coal, about the oil industry, about renewable energy industries to move towards that ambitious goal of uh, carbon neutrality by 2060. And secondly, uh, of course, uh, for every year, we care about uh, the the key targets included in the government work report, which will be read out by Premier Li Keqiang to the gathering of MPC. And for this year, there are strong speculation. The GDP targets will be dropped. Well, that said, I think this is a, this is a quite a phenomenon. This is quite important because it showed that, you know, uh, under President Xi Jinping, China is really shift from quantity of growth to quality of growth. I mean, GDP will no longer be the dominant. It's still important, 
but it will no longer be the dominant measurement for official performance. And is this, if you given consideration to what I just said about this, you know, uh, uh, carbon neutrality, it's, it will be very interesting to see. And also, as we are speaking today, you know, today uh, President Xi has a very big meeting in Beijing at the same venue of the NPC, Great Hall of the People, uh, talk about China's historical achievements of finishing absolute poverty in China. And so the NPC will offer us some clear uh, clues on what's on Xi's agenda for the next five or 10 years after the poverty has gone. So now uh, one pressing issue is about narrowing the wealth gap, narrowing the urban-rural development gap. And this is a challenge that is no less than eradicating uh, absolute poverty in China. So this would be very interesting because many, many countries in the world, you know, only a few can over, overcome this so-called middle-income trap to getting to the high uh, income level, become a rich country. So China is now at this moment. Whether China can leap uh, forward this middle-income trap will matter a lot for the global economy, for the whole world, not only economically, but also for social stability. You know, if, if China is going to be uh, suffering this gaping uh, income gap, then there will be no long-term stability. I think Beijing clearly knows that. So this is, a, this is something like really human being experiment we're going to witness in the coming years. Yeah, and John, um, bringing you in on this topic, as Joshin suggested, most, most of this stuff is already preordained. Um, never really have too many surprises in at the NPC. What's your own sense of, um, in terms of the economy, in terms of the political side, what will you be looking out for? Well, one of the big debates is uh, continuing the ec- or not continuing the economic stimulus that has supported the economy in its recovery from the pandemic. There are some in the government uh, led by the People's Bank of China, the central bank, who say that we should reduce uh, stimulus because of the excess liquidity and the prospect of um, a liquidity uh, uh, asset bubbles as well as worries about the sharp rise in the uh, level of debt in China. And so reduce stimulus and then start to reduce overall debt. Uh, There are others who say, look, the economy is still very fragile. We don't know what's going to happen to the global economy. And so we need to maintain the stimulus that we had last year, at least for the first part of the year. So we will see. And there will be two measures that will be announced in the work report that will be released next Friday, which are, one, the uh, budget deficit as a percent of GDP, and that's expected to be lowered. The question is how far. And the other is the level of local government uh, bond issuance. Uh, Local government bond issuance in large part funds infrastructure projects, which have been one of the backbones of the economic recovery. And if they lower the amount of borrowing, then that lowers the amount of funds that will be given to these infrastructure projects. And so that will be a big thing. Are you going to continue the existing level of support for the economy or are you going to cut it back, start to taper off? Yeah. And John, these are sort of very much about the administration of the the Chinese economy. Do we expect to hear many foreign policy points being made here or many sort of overseas trade policy? Joshin, you can come in on this as well, if you like. But I mean, obviously, everybody's looking out to hear about maybe how China's reacting to some of the actions, early actions of the Biden administration, some of the stuff for the EU with which it's just agreed an investment treaty. What are the foreign policy prospects of the next week? 
As the new uh, commerce minister said yesterday, uh, there, the U, the China wants to re-engage with the United States. Um, it wants uh, the Chinese officials have been very clear that they want the U.S. to take away all the the tariffs on uh, Chinese exports to the U.S. that are now currently in place. Uh, the Biden administration has indicated that they're not going to do that at least at the moment, as they undertake their overall strategic review of policies towards China in order to come up with a one comprehensive strategy. So what we might hear at the two sessions from Chinese officials is more rhetoric along those lines. Look, on the one hand, we want to engage with the United States or re-engage with the United States because engagement basically fell apart under Trump. Uh, But we want you to take these actions, these goodwill gestures first. Um, in particular, the tariffs on uh, Chinese exports. Uh, whether that, uh, how much of that rhetoric there will be is unclear. So another thing we may hear something about is uh, the need for new rules in order to help China qualify for the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the 11-member trade group uh, that the U.S., helped negotiate, but under Trump, the U.S. dropped out. But the 11 nations on both sides of the Pacific that are still members of it, very strong group, very large economies, and China wants to be a part of that. But to do that, they have to address a lot of issues, in particular uh, issues like subsidies to domestic industries. And this is where China has work to do, and we may hear something about that during the two sessions. Yeah, and the dominance of those state-owned enterprises and so on. Just quickly, Joe Shane, on that point, a lot of skepticism about CPTPP and China's interest because of the men- the issues that John mentioned, like its eligibility in terms of its the nature and s- structure of its economy. Some quarters, there's this sense that when China mentions that it wants to join CPTPP, it's a little bit of mischief, you know, that it's perhaps reminding the United States what it's missed out on in the Trump era. Do you see this as a serious aim of Beijing or is it mostly for PR value or is it notional, aspirational? What's your thoughts? Well, Finba, never un- underestimate, I mean, Beijing's uh, uh, seriousness if both Xi and Li Keqiang said, yes, we want to join this. And if you look at this whole deal, some people may thinking, oh, you know, China was just trying to piss off the United States by saying, oh, if you are not, if you are not in, I'm going to uh, join this club. Uh, it's more than that, I think. For Beijing leaders, they also need some external pressure to keep, you know, reform some of the domestic problems. It's exactly like, uh, you know, China's joining of the WTO have helped to solve many domestic problems. I, I don't think uh, Premier Zhu Rongji in the later 1990s, you know, can uh, have this political blessing to dismantle the state on the, on the sector uh, without, you know, China's urgent the urgent need to join the World Trade Organization. So for, for, for China, it's the same. You know, China has, this is a strategic choice, whether China wants to be decoupled from the rest of the world or China wants more integration with the world economy. If the answer is the letter, and then there will be questions like, okay, what would be the cost for us to join the uh, CPTPP? And if you are sitting in, uh, uh, sitting in the great half of the people, maybe the two, the two questions you will ask yourself will only be, Will this finish our Communist Party rule? 
The answer is no. Okay, let's go ahead. Will this, you know, finish the the the, the People's Republic of China as a as a legitimate government of China? No. So let's give it a try. So I don't think, you know, for Beijing, there's there's something, you know, they they cannot overcome. You know, the the reform of the state on the sector, the protection of more、uh, labor rights. Clearly on the agenda of、uh, of Beijing, and maybe they are not still on the same page. But at least you know China can move towards these these goals and the negotiation process. And you know the the aim to join the C- CPTPP is already something、uh, a big commitment from the Chinese government. So I don't think we can take it too lightly. Yeah, and for anyone listening who hasn't heard our interview with Long Yong Tu on the podcast, I think it was just before Christmas. I would urge you to go back and have a listen to that. It was it was very interesting indeed.、Uh, Joe Shin, I'll stay with you quickly.、Um, Joe Biden this week、uh, signed an executive order which is designed to create more security for what is、um, the American supply chain. I think this is in the aftermath of the pandemic, and a lot of the Western world realised how、uh, dependent they were on China for very important goods. It's made a lot of headlines.、Um, it is, I guess, in a sense, an embryonic industrial policy. Has this picked up any traction in Beijing?、Uh, is it in the in the local press? Probably not. But is it in the conversations that you're having up、uh, with with people in in, in China? Oh、uh, well, no, because、uh, clearly, you know, this kind of uh, uh, China-free value chain is over ambitious. Because you know, if if it's possible, Trump has already. Uh, nailed it, but if Trump cannot do it with his tariff war and this kind of、uh, bullying or、uh, you know、uh, coercing of its trade partners, you know why we believe like Biden can do this, and also there will be no、uh, because this is basically against economic law, right?、Uh, the you know the the value chain is dependent on China for a reason, and this is not only because people love the Communist Party, because there are profits to make,、uh, you know there are. Advantages there. So, if you have some political will, you launch some、uh, political campaign. Maybe this will be help a little bit, but you cannot fight against economic laws. No, but I think in certain areas, John, there will be a real push to domesticize at least the most crucial goods. I mean, I don't think anybody expects that they're going to sort of totally. Desynthesize the supply chain, but what's your what's your take on that? Would you agree with Joe Shin, or do you think there's some measure of realism in any of it?、Uh, it all depends on money. I mean, if, as we were discussing earlier, it's about subsidies. I mean, if the if the U.S. federal government steps up and and decides to fund this reshoring of industries, they can do it. Uh, for instance, in the pharmaceutical industry, they can change the tax code so that、uh, it penalizes. Uh, pharmaceutical companies for、uh, for moving manufacturing abroad and give them incentives to move back, and, and that idea was contained in Biden's Build Back Better program, which he campaigned on, which was initially focused on pharmaceuticals and the precursor chemicals for pharmaceuticals、uh, because of the coronavirus, how dependent、uh, the United States had become on China and India for those chemicals, and they weren't available for Americans at the height of the crisis, and so that was one of his campaign themes among all of his coronavirus campaign themes、uh, was let's take control of this, let's make sure that these crucial health Products are under our control. The further down the list you go, the more difficult it gets.、Um, Biden、uh, set out、uh, four areas to look into:、uh, semiconductors,、uh, pharmaceuticals, which we just talked about, batteries for electric vehicles, and、uh, rare earth minerals.、Uh, just using rare earths 
as an example, they are uh, mining of rare earths is highly polluting. That's one of the reasons that the United States no longer has any major rare earth mining. Uh, it, it, there are big rare earth deposits in the United States. And again, it's just a question of money. Who's going to invest the money to uh, mine those rare earths? Um, and where in to make a profit uh, is the federal government going to get involved here is it going to give subsidies is it going to give away federal land to miners to do these things there's a lot that could be done but again it all comes down to money i agree with john i think i think by the last last week or uh, time you know the biggest thing the hottest uh, one of the hottest videos on chinese uh, internet is a, is a kind of talk show between Apple CEO Tim Cook with a 22-year-old Chinese student. And Tim Cook was uh, sharing his love of the Chinese culture, you know, how he was uh, taking tons of uh, uh, inputs from Chinese consumers to make the iPhone products better. So this, this is a clearly sign to see, you know, for the, for the high-tech companies, for the, even for the U.S. businesses, they can see that the tensions have been eased. And so they, they, they need to move fast to take advantage of this kind of uh, eased uh, hostilities between the two countries so that they, do, they will not uh, lag behind. Another thing is uh, a big industry event in Shanghai, uh, the World Communication Conference. You know, it, it, at that, Huawei, of course, is the biggest exhibitor. But also on the venue, we see uh, the, the huge boosts of uh, Qualcomm, of Ericsson, of Nokia. They are there not because they have some uh, political agendas, because there's clearly their profits to make. They want to have be close to the Chinese market. They want to have a closer relationship with China Mobile and China Unicom so that they can continue selling their products. So these things are you know, quite telling. Uh, actually, from the corporate side, I think even while Biden was saying, like, let's have a China-free value chain, but I see the corporate world are doing exactly the opposite. Yeah, money, no matter who's in power, still makes the world go round. And that is something that will continue. For now, Joe Shin, John Carter, that has been fascinating. We will reconvene next week to see if there are any surprises from the NPC. I doubt it, but we'll give you a full lowdown then anyway. Uh, thanks a million for your time this evening, guys. Thank you. Thank you. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Philippe Lecour is a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in China's relationship with Europe. Philippe, thanks for joining us. I guess it's a busy week for you and a busy year so far. On Monday, we saw the Foreign Affairs Council at the European Commission issue a stern rebuke of Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong. Later in the week, we saw a continued backlash in the European Parliament against the EU-China Investment Treaty. And I'm wondering, Philippe, from your perspective, how much has the mood changed in Europe, in Brussels, uh, I guess, more, more importantly, towards China in this 2021 so far? Well, obviously, Finbar, there was a, a deciding moment in 2019 when the European Union decided to, to use this triad, you know, the, the calling China a partner, a competitor, and systemic rival. Now, China doesn't like this, this uh, last term. Uh, it calls uh, the EU a partner. 
but this is the situation. And, you know, the mood is still very much like that. Now, of course, there's been the, the, the comprehensive agreement on investment that was signed at the very last minute of, of uh, 2020. So to, to answer your question more directly, 2021 is going to be a complicated year because on one hand, you'll have this, this negotiation going on on the investment deal. But on the other hand, there will be what the European officials call the toolbox. And toolbox includes, you know, human rights, Hong Kong, uh, you know, trying to, to, to push for, uh, uh, you know, a more values-oriented um, European diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis China. Yeah, this to toolbox uh, has been a, obviously not a new thing, but European officials are talking about it at every opportunity. I get the sense that they were a little bit surprised by the reaction to the investment treaty, the CAI, as people are calling it. Is that your sense as well, Philippe? And now they're keen to emphasise that they have other tools in the armoury for dealing with China. It's not just about this investment deal. Yes, indeed. Well, obviously, the, you know, the officials would tell you that they have been they had been negotiating for seven years, uh, thirty five rounds of talks uh, at at you know a director general uh, level for trade. Um, now, so it, it didn't happen overnight, uh, as far as the European Commission is concerned, um, and member states, particularly Germany, who was in the chair, as you recall, um, uh, of the European Council. For the, for the second half of last year, was very keen to push for this deal to be signed because Chancellor Merkel, who's retiring uh, next September from mm -hmm. politics, in fact, uh, wanted this deal to be finalized. Now, the problem is, of course, uh, some smaller countries maybe uh, didn't feel they were consulted uh, enough, uh, although, of course, they were kept in the loop, I would say. Uh, and, and some said that we should have, uh, I mean, the EU should have waited for the new uh, US administration to be uh, inaugurated, which happened in uh, January um, 20th. But that was three weeks after the deal was announced. And, and, and the third part, I would say, uh, has to do with the members of the European Parliament. Uh, a vast majority of them are uh, fairly opposed to the deal because mm. they feel um, there's going to be issues on forced labor, uh, particularly in Xinjiang. China might not compel with the uh, international labor organization conventions. There's no, um, the, the implementation process is not clear enough to, to many of these people. Yeah. When I've been speaking with officials this week in, in Hong Kong and, and also on the phone in, in, in Europe, um, the common thing to say is that if there was a vote now, it would not be ratified by the parliament, nor would it be approved by the council, because many of the prime ministers wouldn't have mandates from their own parliaments to to go ahead with this, this agreement. Is that your own sense, Philippe? And how much can change in a year? Do you think this will get ratified? So I guess the commission will have to do a lot of uh, explanation uh, work uh, because as, as you said, I mean, most MEPs uh, that have spoken out on, on this issue have, have already said they would not vote for, for this deal. And uh, that would be, of course, uh, an embarrassment because, um, you know, uh, for, for the EU to uh, come uh, out of its way to, to finalize, uh, I mean, complete a deal like this, uh, under uh, the German presidency uh, at the very last minute and not being ratified um, would be would be an embarrassment for both um, mm -hmm. Germany and France, in fact. Um, now, of course, a lot can happen. 
uh, governments will have to be convinced, especially those that were not perhaps in the in the prime circle of the discussion at the at the very beginning. Uh, it's it's obviously the, the 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 main beneficiaries of this deal are um, industries from Germany, um, some other countries, but I would say. Uh, the Germans, of course, uh, those who have been in, in China for a long time, particularly, uh, will uh, will continue to benefit from their presence, particularly the automotive industry, but also chemicals. Um, now, there are other industries that don't don't feel the need for the for such a deal, especially in the high tech, because they feel that China is more of a competitor in Europe itself, not not uh, you know for European companies in China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you, Philippe, on Monday, the Foreign Affairs Council um, had a stern rebuke for uh, Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong, but there was no uh, really, there was a couple of quite watery measures announced, but nothing really concrete, no new sanctions. Um, But there was the the caveat that if there was a further deterioration in the electoral reform uh, that's going on in Hong Kong or in some sort of um, further crackdown on opposition, that there are tools that can be used. What would you expect, Philippe, to be the next development with regard to the European Commission's um, positioning on Hong Kong? So, you know, honestly, I think uh, if you compare with the UK position, which has, which is very clear because, of course, of the uh, the British overseas passport uh, uh, arrangement that was established, you know, uh, before the the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. Uh, the, the EU is not able to do a similar scheme. Um, and so trade sanctions would be difficult, I think. Um, but, but I think, you know, uh, European leaders are keen to, to express their views on this. And the question is whether it's going to be part of the uh, negotiation on, on CHI or uh, other uh, economic uh, um, you know, discussions between the EU and China. I'm not. I'm not sure they can do very much than than speaking out. To be mm-hmm. honest, and certainly that's the role of the European Parliament as well. And and you have a very strong, uh, you know, uh, pro human rights lobby there. Um, and and Hong Kong and and the the case of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang are, are, are both on top of the list. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps some more strongly worded statements, but not much action. But Philippe, very interesting to get your take. Thanks a million for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Finbao. Thanks for listening to China Geopolitics Podcast. We'll be back this time next week with more analysis of the Lianghui and everything else that goes on in China's relationship with the rest of the world. Until then, keep an eye on scmp.com for all the latest updates. You can follow our team at SCMP Economy on Twitter. I'm at F Birmingham. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask. You know the drill. We'll see you next week. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.